Welcome to the Grace Point Podcast, a ministry of Grace Point Church for Scythe in Cumming, Georgia. To find out more about Grace Point Church, you can go to our website at gpca.org. That's gpca.org. We are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. Verses 2 through 29, you can find this on page 844 of the Blue Pew Bibles or 1003 in the Red Pew Bibles. Go ahead and be turning there. As you do, I want to remind you of a few things. I want to thank you again for your participation in the congregational meeting last week. Uh, Thank you for nominating men who you saw already serving, already uh, caring for others. I will be reaching out to them soon, and our training process will begin in the near future. I just want to thank you for uh, being willing to pray for these men, uh, pray about choosing them, and pray for them now as they continue to consider whether or not to lead this church. I also want to remind you that if you have kids ages 5 to 5th grade, we have Crusoe Kid Zone, which is right out that back door. This is where our kids uh, take some time to study the Word. We are uh, began this year a study by Marty Machowski, which is a Christian author who uh, walks through the Bible from beginning to end. The study will probably last upwards in the neighborhood of three years, and so we are excited and encouraged that these kids will be able to walk through the entire story of the gospel from creation to redemption and see how Jesus worked all throughout. And finally, I want to continue to encourage you to use these cards to invite people from church or to church. These cards are just opportunities for you to either start conversations or just to invite. These are a great way just to, uh, if you're nervous or scared or praying for someone and don't know what to say, just say, we'd love to see you at church. It's easy to say, you know, hey, listen, if you already have a church, that's great. But if you don't, here's our church. We'd love to see you worship with us. This is a good way for you to invite. I've set the goal for myself of trying to hand out at least one of these every single week so that we are constantly inviting people to worship. This is a great way, a great segue to talk about who Jesus is and what the gospel is. We have these at the back of the room. We have these in the office. And we have these on the wall right here outside the sanctuary. Now that you've turned to Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 29, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 29. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, and no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, Listen to him. And suddenly, looking all around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. 
And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he said to them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he is a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able And he, that is Jesus, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he rose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand this text. Your disciples got to see the glory of Jesus and yet still did not fully grasp who he was. So often, Father, our eyes are blinded as well, and we pray that as we read this text, as we dive into this text, as we seek to understand this text, you would reveal the glory of your Son to us, that we might be filled with awe. Help our minds to comprehend this text, help our hearts to hide the truth of this text within, and help our hands to work out what this text calls us to. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, context is, yes, all right. I love that. I know some of you think it's silly, but it's very important. And I hope that every time you open up your Bible, you remember that. Context is king. It's king because in order to understand what we're reading in the Bible, we need to understand what was written. We can't read a love letter as though it is a historical document. We can't read prophecy as though it tells us exactly what has already happened. We need to understand the context. 
And so as we've gone through the book of Mark, we've seen the context of Mark. Mark is the shortest synoptic gospel. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain many of the same stories, and so they're called the synoptic gospels. And Mark is the shortest one of those, and it's written by John Mark, not because he was there and witnessed it himself, but because he took Peter's witness and wrote it down. It was written basically to Gentile Christians. Matthew uh, talks and touches a lot on Jewish history so that as Jews try to understand who Jesus is and how Jesus relates to them, they would understand his history. But a Roman soldier isn't going to understand all the things that Jews were taught from an early age. And so the book of Mark seeks to help Gentile Christians understand exactly who Jesus is. And with the book of Mark, we see a few key themes. I'm not going to cover all of them, but we see the sonship of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God's son. We see the authority of Christ, that as Jesus teaches the gospel to these people, he also is able to heal and to control the weather and to cast out demons, which gives credence and understanding to the gospel that he's preaching. And we see the gospel of Christ. The reason that Jesus came. He didn't come to calm the winds and impress people. He didn't come just to cast out demons. He didn't come just to heal. He came primarily to bring the gospel to bear. Not just for those people, but for us as well. As we've been studying the book of Mark, we've also been using Kintsugi pottery as an image for what we're seeing in the gospel. Kintsugi pottery is this Japanese art where the, bo bo excuse me, the bowls are broken, and instead of being repaired in a way where you can't tell they were broken, the breaks are highlighted. And what this shows us is how beautiful broken vessels can be. Because that's what we are. We are broken vessels. Because of our sin, we are not the way we're supposed to be. And without Jesus, we remain shattered. Some of us have different breaks. Some of us have more breaks. Some of us have been touched more deeply by sin. But through Jesus, it doesn't matter how many cracks we have. It doesn't matter how many pieces we're in. He brings us back together and makes us whole in him and allows us to continue to do what we were created to do, to worship and to witness the Lord we can't put ourselves together if we're these broken vessels. We can't fix ourselves. But Jesus can and does when we trust in him. And so we've seen this idea of the gospel through Kintsugi pottery because the gospel is the primary point with which Jesus is driving home, both in his actions and in his words. Today we're going to look at the transfiguration and the healing of the boy. But before we do that, I want to kind of set the stage and help us get our minds right. Cell phones can do so much these days. Now, probably most of you remember the days when all they could do was make a phone call, and they were the size of a briefcase, and they had to be powered by rats in a wheel. No, I'm just kidding. That last one wasn't real. But cell phones used to be in these giant briefcases, but now we have these devices in our pockets that can do so much. Not only can they make phone calls, but they can direct us wherever we need to go. I remember life pre-GPS. I remember printing out maps from the internet, and being able to find maps on the internet was a big deal for a while. You used to have to buy atlases. If you don't know what that is, 
Find somebody who does. Good learning opportunity. Uh, our devices in our pocket not only can do GPS and phone calls, but the internet. They can control devices within our home. They can entertain us. They can help us if we're seeking to train ourselves or anything like that. They can track our health. They can do our calendar. They can help us with work. Almost anything we can imagine, there's an app for that. Our phones have become these super useful, valuable tools. And so knowing that and recognizing what cell phones can do, how would you react if you went over to somebody's house to visit them for lunch and saw that they used their cell phone primarily as a doorstop and just shoved it under a door so the door wouldn't close? Or maybe you look at their desk and their cell phone's sitting there as a paperweight so that the papers don't flutter off the desk. I mean, yes, a cell phone can be used as a doorstop or a paperweight. But if it's being used primarily as a doorstop or a paperweight, not all of its abilities are being used. And it's not being used as it should. People would be missing out on so much that the phone could do if they used it just as a doorstop or a paperweight. Now, let's admit it. Here we are at the end of January. It's not just cell phones. Many of us have some kind of exercise device in our house that is being used currently as an exterior closet. We hang clothes or put things on it. You know what I'm talking about. We can't get the exercise if we don't step on the treadmill. It doesn't work that way. It's not designed as a closet. It's designed to help us exercise. Or maybe, and this might hit a little too close to home, we have Bibles that are collecting dust on our shelves because we're not using them. There's so much beauty and truth, and yet we forget that we have that and don't use them. So whether it's cell phones or treadmills or our Bibles, in some ways, these physical manifestations of not being used properly is what we've been seeing with the disciples. They're not understanding who Jesus is. They see a little bit of him. They, they see how he can be a little bit useful, but they're missing out on the broad picture of who he is as Messiah. And so today we're going to look at two glorious sections of text. We're going to see two things. We're going to see the transfiguration of Jesus in verses 2 to 13, and we're going to see the transformation of man in verses 14 through 29. We're going to see the transfiguration of Jesus and the transformation of man. So let's start by looking at the transfiguration of Jesus in verses 2 through 13. This is one of the most beautiful, incredible, and almost undescribable sections of text. I struggled all week, and particularly yesterday, with just feeling inadequate. Because there's no way that I can say anything or, or convey anything that will really get all of us to truly understand the beauty of what happens in verses 2 through 13. We just can't comprehend it. It's glorious. It's incredible. And it's so often skipped over and missed. That's interesting because as we look at the transfiguration, we actually see echoes of Jesus' baptism. In both the transfiguration and the baptism, we see the nature of Christ revealed. You remember at the baptism, we saw all three persons of the Trinity there, and we knew that something significant was there. 
Here in the Transfiguration, we're going to talk about this light that glows from within Jesus and how he is significantly different than anything else they've come across. Not only that, but in both the baptism and the transfiguration, we see this time of, of testing that comes right after. After the baptism, he goes into the desert to be tested by Satan for 40 days. After he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, he's tested by his opponents. We see the scribes there arguing with the disciples, and we also see an unclean spirit seeking to stop his work. And at both the baptism and the transfiguration, we see God, our heavenly Father, calling Jesus his son, calling him out, defining what it means to be his son, vocally manifesting who Jesus is. And so let's take a look at this transfiguration, this significant and glorious event. It starts in verse 2 with... Jesus taking three disciples up the mountain with him, Peter, James, and John. We know that these three are some of the closest members of uh, the disciples, and we know that he often does things with them. And what we're going to see, what these three disciples are going to see, is Christ's true divine nature peeking through. We're going to hear about this later on. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Peter talks about this transfiguration and how it allows the divine nature, majesty, and radiance of Christ to be seen. How it allows them as disciples to see who Jesus really is so that as they then go and minister, they can minister to his true character. We move forward, and verse 3, we see that something changes. This is the actual transfiguration. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Verse 3 shows us how different Jesus is. If you remember in the Old Testament, when God was interacting with Moses on Mount Sinai, particularly when Moses asked to see God, all Moses saw was the back of God, but when he came down the mountain, his face was radiating, so much so that he had to have a veil over his face. But with Moses, that was just a reflection of the glory that he saw. It was just shown on his face. The way it's described for Jesus is so much different. It comes from within and goes out. Not only is he intensely white, but his clothes as well are made so white, they're radiant. Think about that word, radiant. Glowing, glorious, coming from within. It's interesting, too, because we see a parallel in Revelation to where uh, when they talk about white robes in Revelation, that signifies purity. And here in all of text, we have the most white, most glorious, most pure example, Christ in his radiance. One of the reasons this is so beautiful is because this glory, this, this divine radiance, this peek into Christ's true nature is rare. We don't get to see it very often in Scripture. Most of the time, his divine nature is hidden. But here, it is on full display for three, these three disciples. 
Move on to verse 4, and we see that Moses and Elijah are with Jesus, talking to Jesus. Now, this isn't Moses and Elijah being reincarnated or brought back. Instead, they're there to show who Christ is. Moses, in all the Old Testament texts, represents the law. He's the one that brought the law. He's the one that brought the people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And so when people think about Moses, they think about the law, the way they're supposed to live. Elijah represents the prophets, the ones who brought forth the message that the people needed to repent and believe. And so when we talk about Moses and when we talk about Elijah, we're talking about these men who represent the law and the prophets. And we've already seen that Moses, while he did look at the back of God and reflected God's glory, Jesus came from within. His radiance comes from within. And so Moses and Elijah are there, not so that Jesus can have a conversation that he's been waiting to have with him, but instead to show those disciples that Jesus is greater than both the law and the prophets. Jesus is greater than both of these heroes of the faith. Jesus is greater than the law. He replaces the law with grace in this new covenant. He's greater than the prophets because he's the ultimate prophet, the one who brings us the message that we need most, the glory of the gospel which comes from God, not our own works. So Christ being radiant, standing next to Moses and Elijah, shows the disciples Christ's greatness over and above Moses and Elijah. Now, verse 5 shows us that, again, Peter's not fully grasping who Jesus is. Peter's still looking at Jesus like a phone being used as a doorstop. Sure, he's great. We've seen him do some things, but not fully grasping how he is the Messiah. And in verse 5, he's finally starting to get a little bit of it because he sees and counts Jesus as equal to Moses and Elijah, which is a step up in Peter's view, but it's still not the full extent of God's glory. Peter misses that Jesus is so much more than Moses and Elijah. And what Peter does is he displays his confusion by saying, well, let's let's put some tents up, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter is befuddled. He doesn't know what to do, and so he recommends putting tents up. Now, this might be something that uh, a reference to the tents or the temporary dwellings of the Feast of Booths, one of those yearly feasts that Israel celebrated to remember their desert wanderings, to remember that God had brought them out of slavery and into the promised land. So that might be what Peter is referring to. We don't want to push that too hard because there's no clear link between the transfiguration and the Feast of Booths, so we have to be careful with it, but that might be what Peter is doing. He, he sees Moses, he sees Elijah, he sees Jesus radiant, he, he doesn't know what to do, and so he says, let's put up tents. But whatever reason that he recommends tents, he's still clearly confused. And in fact, as we go on and look at verse 6, it's likely that he's just talking and has no idea what he's saying. Look at verse 6. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. I don't know about you, but the first time I read the Transfiguration, I missed that they were terrified. I'm so enamored with, holy cow, Jesus is glowing from within, and we see Moses and Elijah, and this has a major impact on the disciples, that I missed that they were standing there quaking in their boots and didn't know what to think. That's what the text says. They have no idea what to think. 
And so it's possible that Peter recommending that they build tents is just the first thing that comes to mind because he's so scared. Then we have this glorious verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them. This would have been a physical, visible cue that something was changing. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out from the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Wow. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. You don't get much more of a ringing endorsement than that. Whenever we look at books or movies, it's, oh, this person really liked it, or this whatever. That is the greatest endorsement anyone can ever get. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Christ is fully endorsed by the Father, not just as a prophet, not just as a priest, not just as a king, but as his son. And so with God saying, Jesus is my son, and you need to listen to him, when people disobey Jesus, when people don't listen to him, they are ignoring the Lord. This is huge. Not only is this section of the transfiguration showing us the glory of Christ, but it's also teaching us the importance of listening to him. If we ignore what Jesus says, we are ignoring the Lord. We are ignoring the one who created us. We are ignoring the one who called us. We are ignoring the one who is in power. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be those disciples. To have been standing there with Jesus. Number one, knowing that they're different from everybody else. Because there's 12 disciples, and there's many more than that we know that we're following Jesus. But those 12 were chosen, and then out of those 12, here's these three, and they go up on this mountain with Jesus, and they see Jesus fully revealed. Now we know that they don't fully get it at that time, that comprehension comes later, but can you imagine what this would have been like? Christ so Radiant, so glorious that no amount of bleach or chemical or anything we can imagine could ever make his gowns as white as they were, could ever make him glow the way that he did. Clearly a supernatural, incredible, undescribable situation. And it's not like Moses, where it just reflected off his face. This comes from within. These three disciples should, without a shadow of a doubt, understand how glorious Jesus is. Then, if that wasn't enough, then they see Moses and Elijah. And notice, it doesn't say Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all glowed from within. It only says Jesus glowed from within as he talked to Moses and Elijah. Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. And if the glowing from within, the radiance from within, the glory from within, and standing in the presence of Moses and Elijah wasn't enough, God's voice speaks from heaven. It says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I really don't think that we can comprehend 
how beautiful, how magnificent, how undescribable the situation would have been. Moving on, we see that God speaks. And after God speaks, all of a sudden they're left with just Jesus again. Moses and Elijah disappear. And Christ commands the disciples not to say anything until after his resurrection, which we read, they still don't fully understand. What does he mean by resurrection? The Jews had this idea that we would all be resurrected at the end of the age, but Jesus says, I'm going to be resurrected in three days. So they're still very confused about what this is. But they agree, and they don't say anything. And one of the reasons they're supposed to stay silent is so that if they were to talk about how glorious God is, or, or Jesus is, and, and people were to get wind that Jesus might be the Messiah they've been looking for, they would likely put Jesus at the head of some kind of political freedom fighter movement. They would likely say, oh, okay, this is the one, and you remember, all of the temples and tabernacles were teaching that the Messiah that was to come was going to push out the Romans. They were thinking physically, earthbound. Whereas Jesus is thinking spiritually. And so they would lift Jesus up and use him as the banner to march against Rome. So Jesus says, don't tell anyone until after my resurrection. He doesn't want anything to hinder him from the path of suffering and death that he knows he is on. Because he did that for us. The disciples also learn as they walk down the mountain with Jesus, they, they're asking questions. So they've seen Moses and Elijah, and they say, so is this what the prophets were talking about, that Elijah would return because we expected more or something different? And Jesus says, no, Elijah has already returned. We know from Luke chapter 1, verse 17, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so here we see that affirmation again that John the Baptist was this Elijah-like figure that was coming and paving the way for who Jesus was. Both Elijah and John the Baptist preached repentance in preparation for our hearts to be ready for Christ. And again, here, Christ is challenging the expectations of the disciples. They expected Elijah would come back down from heaven and that that would be the end of the age and that would be it. And Jesus says he has come. And it is the end, but it's the end of an era. It's the end of the law and the prophets. It's the end of, of, of having to sacrifice for our sins. There is a new covenant coming, a covenant filled with grace. So Jesus' transfiguration showed us who he really is. But even the disciples did not fully understand that. So we look at the transfiguration. Now let's look at the transformation of man in verses 14 through 29. We really see two different transformations going on here. We see the transformation of the Father, and we see the transformation of the rest of the disciples who were left down the mountain. So let's look first at the Father, how he has changed, how he has transformed. The disciples walk down off the mountain. They come across this big crowd who is arguing can imagine that was a nice, quiet debate. Lots of people are standing around. The scribes are arguing with the disciples, and Jesus is kind of like, what's going on? Now, it's interesting, too, to notice how Jesus was received as he comes down from the mountain. The crowd is amazed and in awe of Christ. Does the text say anything about the disciples being in awe of Christ? No. But the crowd's in awe of Christ. So again, we're seeing disciples, you need to be waking up, others are getting it, and you are not. 
And so Jesus says, what's going on? A, a father comes up and says his son has a demon, a demon that's been trying to kill him since he was a baby. We see this in verses 17 and 18, how it, it tries to throw him down, how it tries to push him into the fire, push him into water. And the, fa- and the father recognizes that Jesus is a teacher. He says, teacher. So he, he is recognizing that there's some sort of power or authority with Jesus. Now, this could be just that he heard it from others, but we know that he doesn't fully understand who Jesus is because of what comes next. Verse 19 tells us the issue with the disciples and the opponents, and that was faithlessness. Oh, you faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? This is particularly a lack of trust in Jesus combined with a lack of prayer. And that lament that Jesus laments, O faithless generation, echoes the lament of the Old Testament prophets. Because of a lack of trust in Christ, we see that there's resistance and opposition to Jesus, as well as people looking just for healing, who don't really understand who Jesus is. So now Jesus is kind of turning into this vending machine of healing. Go see that guy. He always works. You tried this guy. He didn't work. You tried this guy. That guy will get it done. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah. They just see him as some amazing healer. So the boy is brought to Jesus. And we see Jesus' compassion for the boy. He asks the father about him. He draws the father out, asking questions. And notice how the father pleads with Jesus He pleads desperately for Jesus to do anything that he can do. The interaction here is interesting. Again, verse 22, He has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. What does Jesus say? Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can. Now I have to imagine, this is because I'm somewhat cynical and sarcastic, that Jesus is doing a little bit of scoffing here. If you can. If you can. Really, you bring your son to me and say, if you can. His disciples know who he is. The scribes have an idea who he is. That's why they want to kill him. And this man comes to Jesus not knowing who he is and says, if you can, have mercy on us. And Jesus says, if you can, All things are possible for one who believes. Jesus strongly corrects the Father, admonishing that Father to believe in God. What does verse 24 say? He uses one of Mark's favorite words. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. In contrast, again, to the disciples who are slow going and not understanding who Jesus is, who have reservations and are more concerned about bread than the lessons about the Pharisees and Herod, the father immediately listens to Jesus and confesses his unbelief. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. cannot tell you how many times that has been my cry. Because every time I sin, I realize that I'm not believing. And I believe but my sin keeps pulling me into unbelief. I want to believe. I want to, I want to be helped in my belief. I want to grow to the point where I'm not tempted to sin anymore. 
And in contrast to the disciples, the father instantly recognizes what Jesus is telling him and says, I believe. Help me. Help my unbelief. He admits his doubt. He begs Jesus to help him, to shape him so that he can trust God. Grammatically, this sentence could be read like this. I want to grow in trusting. Continue to help me with my unbelief. I want to grow in trusting. Continue to help me with my unbelief. I don't know how many of you guys do this, but in college, on our mirrors, we used to use dry erase markers to write notes to each other or reminders or things like that. This feels to me like one of those sentences that I need to see every morning. I want to grow in trusting. Father, help me. Continue to help me with my unbelief. What an honest and glorious cry to Jesus. This man who didn't understand who Jesus was as he walked up to him, calls him teacher, this generic name, and then honestly opens his heart and says, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. I want to believe. and I need your continuous help so that I can. That cry is glorious. That cry is something we should be doing every single day. Because if we're not doing it every day, we're not recognizing our sin. Brothers and sisters, I hate to say this to you, but you are sinners. It's true. And you're not sinners once a week. You're not sinners once a month. You don't have cheat days like on diets. You're sinners every moment of every day. Because your heart is corrupted. We read in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And if we don't recognize that, and if we're not crying out to God to save us from that, to help us with that, to grow us in our faith, then we're not believing that we're actually sinners. Instead, we're believing that we can do it on our own. This father, whose son is in a situation that he can't get him out of, makes the plea and the cry that the disciples should have been making, that we should make every day. I believe. Help my unbelief. And so what does Jesus do? He commands the Spirit not just to leave, but to never come back. And again, in contrast to the disciples, the unclean spirit listens to Jesus. So you've got a, a father who didn't understand who he was. You've got an unclean spirit who didn't understand who he was. And you've got the disciples who should understand who he is. And the ones that we least expect to understand and respond do understand and respond because they have a better grasp on who Jesus is than the disciples do at this time. So Jesus fully restores the boy and displays his sovereign power over Satan. Just like he did after he was baptized and went into the desert for 40 days and showed Satan, no, I trust in God, not in you. This shows us that only Jesus can provide true peace. I believe. Help my unbelief. The Father is transformed. Transformed from a man who said, if you can help me, please be gracious and do, to a man who says, I believe. Help my unbelief. 
And then we see the disciples. The disciples also, we get to watch them as they slowly transform, as they slowly start to piece together who Jesus really is. In some ways, it's a a very frustrating journey because you would hope that in chapter 1 they would get it, but they don't. And now we're halfway through entering into the second half where Jesus is predicting his death and it still seems like they're not grasping it, but we will see by the end that they are willing to die for him. And so in the midst of this, we start to see this continual transformation of the disciples. Before Jesus came down from the mountains, his remaining disciples, the nine who didn't go up with him, despite having done it previously, despite having gone out and casting out spirits previously, were not able to do it this time. So they were arguing with the scribes. They were frustrated. We've been able to do this. Why couldn't we do this this time? And after Jesus comes down, and after we get this glorious lesson from the Father, I believe, help my unbelief. And after they're alone again, the disciples ask Jesus, why? Why could we not cast out that unclean spirit? And Jesus tells them that they must not only depend on him, which, by the way, is the lesson that that father taught them, I believe, help my unbelief, but they also must pray. The disciples, again, are challenged in their lack of faith. They didn't pray. They didn't see God's guidance or hand in this. They've done it before, so they thought on their own power they could do it again. And here, again, Jesus shows them that they need to believe that they need to be faithful, that they need to trust, and they need to pray. So here we've seen the transfiguration of Jesus, glorious, shining from within. And we've seen the transformation of man, both the Father and the disciples, understanding better who Jesus is. So we have to ask the question, what does this mean for us? What does it mean for us? the transfiguration happened. We're not going to get to see that this side of heaven. What does it mean for us that the man and the disciples were transformed? What lessons can we take from that? I think that the text shows us two ways that we miss out on Christ, because we are far too often just like the disciples. One, we don't see Christ as holy, and two, we don't fully trust in Christ. We still want to try and do it Ourselves. So first, we don't see Christ as holy. And I'm not saying that we don't believe that he is who he says he is, but we don't really trust that he's as holy as he says he is. Christ's transfiguration is convicting because the disciples are just like us. We don't see Jesus as holy, as infinite. Too often we forget his glory, we forget his holiness, and we come to him as though he was a vending machine of blessings and desires. I'm going to do whatever I want throughout the week. I'm going to make all my decisions on my own. And when I get to the end of my rope and I can't do it myself, I put my prayer change in and push the button. Jesus is what I want. That's how we look at Jesus. Not as holy, not as glorious, not as infinite like we see in his transfiguration, but instead as someone who can get us what we want. But Christ calls us to know him to trust Him, and to worship Him. Christ tells us that our lives are to be marked with dependence and trust and worship of Him, of the Father, so that we are marked out as different. 
morning in Sunday school, we were talking about how the people of Israel, as they move into the promised land, are supposed to be beacons of light. They're supposed to show the nations around them the glory of God. They're not called to absorb the things of the nations around them. Instead, they're called to show the nations around them who Jesus is. Well, and at that time, who God is, who God's glory is. And we're to do the same thing, to worship him, to trust him, to not treat him like a vending machine, to not treat Christ like a doorstop. He is so much more than the answer of prayers. Not only that, but we should also be convicted as we go on to read this testimony of the healing and challenged the way the disciples were. We should be convicted and challenged to trust and pray more. We should be convicted and challenged in the ways that we try to do things without Jesus and only run to him when we can't. The disciples, from what we can gather from this passage, didn't try to cast out the demon with the Lord's help. They just tried to cast out the demon on their own power. They'd done it before, after all, so why couldn't they do it again? And instead, Christ calls them to trust and to pray more. And finally, we should be convicted by the transformation of the Father. His heart and attitude should convict us. How often do we take time to recognize and repent of our sins? Do you do this every week? Now, Lord willing, you're doing it anytime we have our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon and our confession of faith. But are there other times during the week that you are recognizing your sin and running to the Lord for forgiveness? Are there other times during the week when you recognize how you have not believed what God said and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief? Are there other times in the week when you reflect on your sin and doubt? Christ is not just a great teacher. Lots of faiths around the world will recognize that Christ was a great man and a great teacher, but he wasn't just that. He was our almighty Savior. He was God. He was the Son of God, and we are called to listen to him. And yet, we so often treat him like a cell phone being used as a doorstop. We just go to him when we have a need, a want, or a desire of our own. We don't reflect on his holiness and what he has sought to teach us. We don't recognize him for who he is. And so in this text where we see this beautiful transformation, this beautiful transfiguration, we are called and drawn into worshiping Christ, trusting Christ, depending on Christ, and praying so that we might trust and believe. Let's pray together. Father, it's really easy for us as humans to just think about our own desires, to just think about the things that we want and that we want to do, and to not trust in you. Many times it's only when we are out of options that we go to you. Father, we pray that our hearts cry 
every single day would be, I believe, help my unbelief. That every single day we would remember that you, Father, out of a cloud said, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. And we would listen. And we would recognize what He's calling us to. To worship and to witness. To trust and to obey. So Father, transform our hearts the way that you transformed the Father's. As He cried out to Jesus, I believe Help my unbelief and remind us of your holiness. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. We pray that you are drawn closer to God and encouraged to be in the Word. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at gpcga.org. That's gpcga.org.